0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Ben Tapper, and I'm joined by the immeasurably talented Matt Burke. Hey, Matt. I see you went two words with
1: that. Is that allowable?
0: I did. I mean, why not?
1: I mean, I'll take it. Immeasurably talented. I appreciate that. Rings true with my experience of myself. Just kidding, people. Just kidding.
0: <laughs> hey, how's it going? Good. And we have our magnanimous president here with us today, Reverend Dr. Tim Shapiro. How you doing, Mr. Yeah. President?
2: I'm doing really well today, Ben. And I'm having a particularly good day because I get to do this with you and with Matt.
0: Yeah, we love having you here with us. This has, I think, become one of my favorite segments of the season for the long-time listeners, those that have been with us from the jump. This is, I think... Well, now, Matt, help me remember. I know we've recorded three of these. Have we only launched one?
1: Yes, one is in the archives and has never been released to the public.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like a bootleg copy. It's really (laughs) not all that good, so it got shelved.
0: If you want access to it, I will tell you my cash app later. (laughs) We're here today to talk about our end of year kind of wrap up theme, which is the ghost of congregations past, present, and future. So we'll be taking a look back from the perspective of Matt, Tim, and I on what the trends we've seen in congregational life prior to this moment. We'll be talking about the trends that we are noticing most prevalent in this moment, and then looking ahead and dreaming about the trends that we think are going to be coming down the pipeline in the future. The beauty of this type of episode is that you can hold us accountable. So if we do this another three or four years, you can see if we were right about the trends that we thought were coming or if we're wrong and then call us on it.
1: We're also doing Super Bowl predictions, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, sweet. Sure, I think the Jets will be there. How far off am I?
1: I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, let's kick it off. So let's start with the past. Now we've talked about this a lot as it relates to COVID. And some would say we're still in the pandemic. Some would say we're in a more of an endemic stage now, but there are other trends, other things that have come up for congregations and congregational life outside of the effects of the pandemic. And so Tim, we'll start with you. I'm wondering what are the main themes that you've noticed or that are top of mind for you as you're thinking about congregational life in the past?
2: Sure. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. So one thing I think of is that where one is with the pandemic and with COVID-19 is pretty much where one thinks they are. So congregations are still, I think, I don't want to say all over the map, but the way in which they think about the effect the pandemic has had on their congregation, COVID-19, pretty much varies. Between various kinds of responses based on the congregation. It's not like, oh, the New York Times says here's where we are in the pandemic. It's very contextual. And so it's interesting. Some congregations, say, two years ago, had the vast majority of their parishioners or listeners or worshipers online. And what I'm hearing mostly is many of the congregations, most of the congregations, most, almost all of the congregations are back to in-person worship with about 75% of the number of parishioners as there were before COVID. So there's a drop-off in-person and a slight increase that has stayed related to online presence of worship.
0: What do you interpret from those metrics, Tim? What's the story that you're telling about the effects of COVID?
2: Yeah, I imagine that there's folks who statistically study things like response rates to different pandemics and so forth and would say, is 75% return to what you were doing before kind of within a range or not? So I don't know how like a sociologist would frame that. What I hear and see and watch is congregations being very resilient and almost every congregation is being, because they're resilient, very creative. There's lots of energy. I think about in certain settings when there's like been something really difficult happening in a community, let's say, there's been a tornado in the community. Usually people are like running and doing things with really high adrenaline and all kinds of good things. Good help has happened at high adrenaline. I think there was a lot of adrenaline, maybe it's the power of the spirit working when like back in March 2020. And as more congregations are returning to some sense of their regular programming, the regular spiritual practices, there seems to me with the resilience, a kind of high energy So physiologically, it may be adrenaline run. Theologically, it may be the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of energy and resilience.
0: Mm, I love that. Energy and resilience and this idea that congregations are where they tell themselves they are to a lesser or greater degree. It's a different take than I think I typically hear when people are talking about the effects of COVID-19 on congregational life. So my ghost of congregational life past is not that far down the line. I think like you, Tim, I'm thinking in the more immediate past, and I can't help but notice, let me say this. When I think of this ghost, I'm thinking about the intensity with which many congregations, particularly many white urban congregations, began having discussions, thinking and talking about what it meant to address issues of racial injustice. There was kind of like a surge in that action and activity. There was a surge in Imagining how racial justice issues might play a central role in congregational life for a a short time period, six months, nine months, something like that, at least as I experienced it in my work here at the center. And the further we've gotten from spring, early summer of 2020, the less I have heard congregational leaders thinking and talking about that. Now, an optimist might say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course you're going to see that. People are figuring out how to integrate it. So they're coming to the center with fewer questions about how to do that work. And that may very well be the case for some congregations. If you are more cynical, like I tend to be, you might argue that the emphasis has actually been taking off issues of racial justice as people have been able to return to what feels more normal for them and their communities. As the adrenaline has waned some, as the shock has waned some, they've kind of sought out that normalcy and consistency and maybe taken their eye off of racial justice or at least decreased the focus with which they were looking at it earlier. I'm not sure which is playing out more often. But those are my two theories about why I'm seeing less conversations or hearing less conversations about it. So that's what I'm noticing in the past. There was this time where there was this really intense focus and discussion around it, particularly in a lot of our uh, white congregations that I'm not hearing as much of anymore.
2: One thing interesting then was that when we've been talking about the ghost of congregations past, we both have gone more to the recent past. You know, we haven't gone to, okay, this is how congregations were in 2014 and how are they different now? And I know that in tracking our cases and our grants, I think what you said is something that can be verified in terms of where our resource consulting has focused based on congregational requests and grant making around anti-racism or understanding of racism has decreased to some from, say, 2020, 21. I do think, though, one way, and I don't know if this is good, bad, indifferent, congregations have kept attention to their community, which sometimes means there's a focus or an interest or an engagement around race issues and racial justice. But regardless, and I think it is right, there's been some, okay, we're turning our eyes away from that. It was really intense, maybe too intense for us. Congregations have maybe turned that into a focus into their community. And sometimes then that keeps them thinking, praying, making decisions that are different in terms of social injustice and racial injustice. But I think in many ways, it's being framed as community engagement, the congregation beyond the walls and so forth.
1: Can I bring us to a major digression?
2: (laughs) Matt, go for it. (laughs) Sure.
1: Well, I mean, it's on the same topic, but Ben, it's such an interesting observation. And uh, Tim, I appreciate your follow-up on that. And it makes me think about how we let society create the narrative or create the focus of the narrative for us as congregations because you think back and i mean the pandemic i think was unavoidable i mean there's no way that we could not let that be a huge part of the narrative of congregational life and the same i think can be said of the racial justice issues but then i also think about the political landscape and the polarization of politics and how that has defined so much of the narrative in congregational life and i i think it's important for us to remember that For any faith-based tradition and any tradition based on an inspired text and a history, our narrative is so much broader than current events. And I think we need to make sure we pay attention to that as congregational leaders that, of course, we need to pay attention to what's happening in culture around us, but at the same time, not necessarily being swept away into that narrative focus and making sure that we're maintaining our focus on that which is most important which are our core faith claims and commitments i think about a podcast that i listened to recently where they were talking about the christian church calendar and i grew up in a tradition that didn't pay any attention to that whatsoever but this podcast discussed the importance of that calendar because it reminded us of the core tenets of the faith throughout the year and then that helped shape the way that one lived into the world and without that church calendar And it doesn't have to be the church calendar, but what is the anchor? What is the mooring that your community uses to keep you grounded so that you're not swept away into cultural focus, cultural narratives?
2: I'm tracking Matt when folks are writing and it's editorial or it's on a podcast or wherever you get your information and the conversation goes to the polarization of our society. That phrase is almost like a cliche now. Everybody's talking about the polarization, everybody in all contexts and all settings and so forth. But in congregations, congregations have their own set of practices, their own faith stories, their own narratives that are coming out of the tradition, like you said, and out of people's interior lives. So for people who are people of faith, people who are in congregations, there's a whole set of variety of practices that can reframe, even change, so that the word polarization just does not have to have power over faith gatherings and uh, assemblies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think as I shoehorn my topic into what we're talking about, as we think about ghosts of congregations past, thinking about the broader context of the full spectrum of our past all the way back to the beginnings of our faith commitments and where those traditions came from, and there's great strength in that to help us navigate current circumstances. And so getting beyond just the last one, two, three years and remembering the entirety of your congregational history or your faith history and using that to help inform and even rise above some of the cultural narratives that are happening that help, I think, distract us from what is really important in our core faith commitments. So, Matt and Ben, this might be my view of an aspirational
2: past, which I don't know if that's even possible, an aspirational past, but I can see with congregations like have this thing in my mind, this imagination in my mind, that there may be a school board that is very polarized and it's around racial issues, and so forth. And then another context, in the sanctuary, there's a confession of sin in which a white congregation in the suburbs is confessing their participation in racial inequality and racial injustice. And those are two very different practices and activities in two different settings in our social landscape.
0: Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because it kind of helps lead into the question I was going to ask both of you, I hear your point, Matt, about kind of remembering where our anchor points are in our tradition so that we can remain kind of grounded in who we are and the history of our tradition and let that inform how we move forward. I'm also aware that this uh, this is harsh, but I think truthful. It is an excuse I've heard a lot of religious leaders use and a way to avoid delving into some of the most deeply entrenched issues that plague our society. And so if you were giving advice to a congregational leader, what advice do you give on how they walk that line and truly doing the work of remembering like the history of our tradition or our congregation so that we're grounded while not skirting the things that actually we have to talk about and wrestle with?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that on the drive into work this morning about how we boil things down into yes and no, Hmm. that as we're recording this, we're just past the, the midterm elections. And we look at candidates, and we basically want to see a yes-no list on issues. And to me, you need to be asking yourself, why do you care whether the answer is yes or no? And for people of faith, what is the underlying faith commitment around this issue? Because I think in terms of politics and in terms of racial justice, we often are captive to the talking points that are prevalent in society and not really looking at the issues underneath And by having an anchor in our faith tradition, we need to be able to tie something of our faith tradition to how we believe about this thing. I've seen a lot of cognitive dissonance in my life in the faith tradition that I grew up in between claims and commitments about the nature, person, and work of Jesus and then the way You vote and think about certain issues in the world that they were totally at odds with one another. And people did that without being conscious of the fact that those two things were at odds with one another. And so I hear you, Ben, that it's not an excuse to bury your head in the sand about current issues, but where is that connection point between those deep faith commitments, theological traditions, and inspired writings and what's happening in society now? Because I think too often that connection doesn't get made. And one carries a set of social ideas and thoughts, political ideas and thoughts, that they haven't thought through how their faith should help them think about that in a different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, thank you for naming that, Matt. I think it's really helpful advice and perspective. And as you were talking, I was reminded of a couple of folks that I think do this work well. And if you want to hear who these folks are, I encourage you to check out the Shades of Hope podcast by Pastor Jeff and Reverend Dr. Clarence Moore because I think they're marrying this idea of connecting to the past while responding to current events really well. And, you know, we happen to like them here at the Center for Congregations. So check out Shades of Hope. I second that, Ben. Yep.
1: And here at the Center for Congregations, we use the acronym ABR, always be resourcing. (laughs) That's right. (laughs)
0: That's right. Okay. So we have fleshed out our ghost of congregations past. Let's move into the present, which I think is my favorite type of ghost to wrestle with because it's sometimes the hardest to see because you're in it, but you can glean the most from it, I think. So Tim, we'll kick it back to you. How would you describe the ghost of congregations present?
2: Well, I'm not going to, ben and that <laughs> because I still want to go back once more to the ghost of the past. Okay. Right? Take us back. Well, I just want to acknowledge that at least in my life one of the most prominent writers of the christian faith that fed my soul and i think for lots of others died this year at the age of 96 a presbyterian author named frederick Biekner, who has written over 20 25 books about faith some are memoirs some are other forms of nonfiction, and some are novels and Biekner, particularly in his best work gave language for the interior spiritual life of people. And so, yeah, I'm holding on one more statement about congregational past. I encourage, as a resource, you all checking out a Frederick Beekner book called Telling Secrets. Some of our listeners probably already know that book, but I wanted to give honor to uh, Mr. Beekner's life and the writings that he's contributed.
0: Thanks for doing that, Tim. Definitely worth doing. All right, so... Let's talk about the ghost of congregations present. We've looked back. What are y'all noticing? What are we noticing in this present moment? And and Tim, I'll kick it to you. Mental health, just
2: like congregations are leaning into, which I think may be less and less the stigma of mental health and defining trauma in perhaps a different way than the diagnosis of trauma might be thought of. But at the center, when we're working with congregations and we're resourcing congregations and we're giving grants to congregations and we're hosting educational events, congregations can't seem to get enough of learning about mental well being, how to take care of oneself, how important it is to pay attention to mental health and find access to those providers. And then with that also is the learning and acknowledgement that there isn't equal access. So when congregations are becoming more aware probably launched by COVID and isolation and all of that as congregations become more aware and more willing to talk about issues related to mental health they're also then having to figure out how to navigate how to receive services and support and realizing and lessening the stigma is different than accessing resources.
0: Mm, That's good lessening the stigma is different than accessing resources. And what I'm hearing from that, which you may or may not be saying, Tim, is that it's not enough to just decrease the stigma. We've got to figure out where the resources are and how to connect them to the people that need them.
2: Exactly, Ben. One of the things that I really, yeah, I guess admire is the right word or find very fulfilling is when a pastor is describing to me a community development corporation that they've launched And one aspect of the services that they are providing through the CDC is they may be doing like nutrition, mentoring, tutoring, but they have two licensed counselors who are working out of this uh, CDC. And so at least there's the breaking down of the stigma and there is a very serious and intentional attempt to provide access.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the Center for Congregations recently announced our mental health special grant initiative for Central Region in 2023 and then for the rest of the state beyond that. And when the the email went out, I had a, a pastor friend of a Latinx congregation here in Indy text me and she screenshotted the announcement, sent me a picture of it, and then said in all caps, FINALLY, Y'ALL REALLY DO LISTEN. <laughs> she uh, was so yeah. excited. <laughs> So to your point, Tim, like this is a need and there's a lot of congregations, of different ethnic racial makeups across the political spectrum that are realizing, hey, we've got to take this seriously and we're actually committed to doing so and figuring out how to resource our people in our communities. And it's exciting.
1: Yeah. And for anybody listening, there are a very, very large amount of resources available regarding mental health. And a lot of it is free. So reach out to your local office if you have questions or thoughts or need some resourcing around mental health, because there's a lot out there. The stigma and I think lack of awareness are the issues, not necessarily the availability of resources to help. Mm
2: -hmm. Sure. And Matt and Ben, the Congregational Resource Guide, the CRG.org, has some good resources suggestions around mental health. Again, Matt, just the invitation to connect with one of the center's staff. There's also a national organization that really has its act together that is really excellent around mental health. NAMI is the acronym, I think it's the National Alliance Related to Mental Illness. They're local chapters. I'm suggesting NAMI just as a starting place because they resource and are able. you can find on their site like where there are providers near you and so forth. And they do really good explanations of certain things that people are experiencing in their life but haven't like language for it. And someone goes, oh, this is what's happening to me. Other people experience this kind of anxiety. So I'm not strange anymore. I, there's something I can actually do about this. And some of my friends I can talk to about this. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, NAMI also has support groups for family members of those suffering mental illness, just a whole host of of opportunities and resources. Another one I wanted to bring up is I just heard Josh Packard in another podcast recently, which we've had on our podcast. And it's so affirming when we have a guest that's then on another podcast. <laughs> But he runs the Springtide Research Institute, and they just came out with A State of Religion and Young People 2022, Mental Health, What Faith Leaders Need to Know. And his conversations around that were really valuable. So Josh is really good at, he's, I think, a sociologist by trade, but he's really good at bringing the research back to the practicalities of what congregations can actually do to support and help young people. And so I recommend that. And just a reminder, folks, like these are not paid advertisements. We don't have a relationship with these resources. This is not a pay-to-play kind of circumstance or situation. These are things that we independently find that we think are genuinely helpful. And we are generously funded by the Lilly Endowment. Our work is a free gift to Indiana congregations and through the CRG nationally and even globally. So when you hear us mention these things, please understand that this is not something where we, are plugging something that is uh, helping us out behind the scenes by no means. These are things that we've independently found and just thought, you know what, these are really, really good things that congregational leaders need to be aware of.
2: Sure, and Matt and Ben, a lot of these resources come from the congregation the leaders, the pastors, and lay folks. I mean, Ben just noted, you know, you're finally listening, or you really are listening. I think that I've had a conversation with a clergy person, so it's not like 10 conversations, but a really interesting and actually very fun and heartwarming conversation with a clergy person who said that she was being reminded the difference between pastoral care and pastoral counseling and or different forms of therapy. And that by knowing certain resources in her community around mental health, She felt free to practice that which she was called to, which is the care of the souls and pastoral care, and then also be able to recognize when a referral would be a really healthy and supportive thing to do.
0: Yeah. And I like the distinction because to me, it speaks to the nuance of addressing mental health. There are a lot of different ways that you can tackle it, a lot of different needs, different types of needs that can be addressed. And so in doing this work, it's important to understand the nuance that is involved and for that reason, when I think about my own you know, ghost of congregations present, I think I would also probably say mental health, especially I've seen this really, the awareness take off in a lot of our our black congregations and even in our Latinx congregations, starting to make its way into some of the congregations that I work with that are from our immigrant refugee populations even. And, and that's been really exciting. But I'm going to jump us forward. And then Matt, if you need to bring us back to the present, you can as well, because I think if I were to to list a second ghost of congregations present, it's also what I would list for what I see in the future. And it's the diversification of congregations and congregational life. And I don't necessarily mean that I'm seeing more churches or congregations that I would consider to be multicultural or multiracial. I'm saying that when I look at the landscape of congregational life across the state of Indiana and its demographic makeup, I'm seeing an increased number of non-white congregations in no small part due to the influx of and the growth of our immigrant and refugee populations here in Indiana. And it's really exciting to me because it means that communities are thriving. It means that there are new businesses coming up. And it means that we are having new ways to think, talk about, and engage with our faith. And as we can be in conversation with one another and learn from one another, I think it allows opportunities for a regeneration or an infusion of energy energy. Into some of these faith traditions and conversations that maybe we're starting to feel stale for many folks, and so as I look across Indianapolis, especially, and I see increasing numbers of Congolese immigrants and refugees, and I see Burmese immigrants and refugees, uh, and I, you know I see uh, folks from Central and South America coming in. I get really excited, and I think we're continuing to see the amount of congregations that are non-white increase. And even the amount of congregations that don't have English as their only language, even their primary language increase. And that means that there's the opportunity to kind of change and adapt for those of us that are native English speakers, for those of us that might be white or come from traditions that are predominantly white. And then, so I see this infusion as an opportunity to change in really meaningful and healthy ways. And, and that excites me.
2: One of the things that goes with that, Matt, and I wonder if this is true up in uh, Northeast Indiana, The the demographics of, say, Indianapolis, the population breakdown and the different racial ethnic percentages, that is now being, I guess the way I want to say it is congregations are now catching up with that kind of demographic statistics. In other words, all of a sudden, the congregation's existence of um, Spanish-speaking congregations is now becoming more in line with the demographics of the entire Marion County. And so that's a great thing for me. The the communities of faith that you just mentioned, when I'm out visiting and spending time with those congregations, to me that's where the action is. Yeah, those congregations are where the action is.
0: Just to touch on those demographics, I was reading through. I, I might mispronounce this organization. I call them Savi, S A V I. They do a lot of data and analysis for Central Indiana. And they released a racial equity report in November and one of the metrics that they noted was that for Marion County, it's either just over or just under 50% of the population is white. So we're at a point now in central Indiana, Marion County, where in a very short amount of time, if we're not there already, the majority of the population is non-white, which is a trend that we're seeing happening across the country. And a trend, I think, to your point, Tim, we're going to see happening within our congregation. So when we talk about congregational demographics, catching up the demographics of a city like Indianapolis, like That's what we're speaking to. And again, to me, as someone who is non-white, it's very exciting. Yeah, so IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis,
2: does have this tool called Savvy. And Savvy, it it tracks all kinds of institutions, organizations, and maps them. And so if you want to look at, say, the 46204 zip code, you type that in to Savvy, and it will bring up for you, like, The grocery stores, the congregations, the health clinics, the schools that are all in that zip code. So it's a great resource for, say, a congregational leader to say, "Okay, I wonder who is in my area that I don't know about, but maybe our congregation could partner with. So Savvy is just a really great database for resources for congregations in Indiana.
0: And for those that are still actively wrestling with issues of racial injustice or any form of injustice, Savvy's is also a great resource for that. I mean, again, in this equity report card that they just listed out, they broke down different categories like housing, economics, the environment, and they compared uh, lived outcomes across racial groups. And so You know, one of the metrics you could see is when you look at lived outcomes and compare the outcomes for white folks in Central Indiana to our Hispanic folks, Black folks, Asian folks. You can kind of tell that if you are Black, you're three times more likely to live in an area that suffers from environmental pollution than if you are white, for instance. And so, if you know that that's the case in your congregation in Central Indiana, you can kind of see, oh. Which one of these areas might my congregation and community have the most energy around beginning to address? Or maybe we already have people in the congregation doing this work. And so we can just kind of tap into the work they're doing and build upon it. And so if you are a congregation that is still thinking about issues of justice and equity, Savvy can be a great tool to help you hone your focus and to figure out you know, what resources you already have and what you might need to tap into.
2: One of those ways that can begin in lots of congregations and I think Savvy or any other kind of tool that helps you know who your neighbors are, it also frames some of the issues that exist outside of the sanctuary in terms of relationships. Mm. So it's not just um, this particular issue, it's my neighbors. The issue is very important, it needs to be defined, it needs to be spoken. But in the context of the space between people, where I believe the Holy Spirit resides, but it becomes an act of not only justice, but an, an act of neighboring
0: being mm-hmm. a neighbor. Yeah. Well said. Well said. So that's, that's my ghost of congregations future, Tim and or Matt, what are you looking towards? What ghosts do you see existing in the future for congregations and congregational life?
2: So I'll- When we've done this the previous years, have we ever, like, unpacked whether there, again,
0: could be a ghost of the future? (laughs) I don't know that we have, but I love the thought.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, Dickens, Scrooge, which ghost did he experience? I, I don't remember. I love the story. But, again, the idea of ghosts of the future, that actually would be a great title to a movie series. It would be.
1: Well, theoretically, they weren't ghosts. I mean, Jacob Marley was a ghost. The other ones were more spirits of an age or time frame. So I think he was probably using ghost in that term of spirit, not necessarily deceased personage.
2: Then which makes Christmas Carol a faith story in many ways, which I would imagine that if Dickens
0: was here, he might say, well, yeah,
2: maybe, you know. Future though, Ben,
0: that's where you were wanting us to. Uh, <laughs> so, to we look are, at. what spirits of congregational life are y'all noticing or hoping for?
2: I love looking at the titles, you know, Next Church. Actually, I think that's a title, so I don't want to put it down. So it's a great <laughs> book. <laughs> so, Google Next Church, read it. But the forecasters of almost any field, you know, what's public education going to look like? What's healthcare going to look like? What will congregations look like? They're never right. <laughs> so, well, again, I need to back off that statement. It's not like they're never right. But to me, it's almost more fun to, rather than the forecast, is just to say, mm, I wonder what's going to unfold that I would never think of. And I think that's where congregational space and congregational life is. I like the fact that we may not know what it's going to look like, what the ghost is going to bring. I do believe it's going to bring some really warm and beautiful things. We just maybe haven't seen them yet.
0: That was a very eloquent way to skirt the question, Tim. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to feel bad all day if I knock the book off pretty big, I know. No, point well taken. Point well taken. What are you holding on to, Matt?
1: Something that I'm encouraged by, and I don't know if this is just an availability heuristic or whether it's an actual phenomenon that's happening across congregations, but it just seems like there's more of an interest in the people being the focus and the work being the focus, as opposed to the building, the institution, and the worship service being the focus. I just spoke to a congregation recently. It's a relatively historically conservative congregation, but they talked about how the entire thrust of their training and ministry and discipleship over the last year has been moving people from sheep to shepherds. And what they mean by that is basically training everyone in their congregation to be a chaplain in their context. And I just thought there was a really great aspect or beauty to that thought process that it's reclaiming the Christian understanding of what it means to be a priesthood of believers, that all people are active in ministry, regardless of what they get paid to do, regardless of who they're with on a daily basis. And that one congregation, I've seen that theme pop up in other places as well. And I think that's one of the gifts that the pandemic gave us, is really asking ourselves, why do we do this thing? And when it was not possible to go into the building anymore, because I think that had become the central focal point of so many congregations, people started asking the question, why do we do this thing? And is this really the key and most important aspect of what we do? And not that it's unimportant, of course, but what is the central most important thing that we do? And I think a lot of congregations are rethinking that and paying attention to that and that encourages me because I think I see congregations in the future stepping into culture, community, and society in a stronger way and in a more loving way and in a more loving posture. And I hope to see that trend continue.
2: Thanks for stepping into that space, Matt, because I'm thinking of a offering that we've had at the center of the formative power of your congregations. Thanks to Dr. Christina Jones-Davis, professor at Christian Theological Seminary. We've had a grant program and... It begins by asking which one of you as a layperson person or a clergy person have become part of this congregation because the thing that you wake up to in the morning on Sunday that drives you is the fact that you get to make the ice from the ice machine for the fellowship hour after worship. Mm. And instead, congregations are so eager to frame that from like congregation as a loose association of volunteers to sustain the operations of the congregation to a congregation that forms people into a particular way of life into that which most is important to them, sort of the ground of their own being, what means the most to them, which is an allusion to Paul Tillich's theology. So congregations chose to go on pilgrimages around race. Uh, Congregations chose to begin to dive into, what does it mean to be a parent in 2022 and 23? So we call those life arenas and that the congregations were able to be the formative power of people in those different life arenas. And that's a very different view of thinking of the church as an organization of volunteers who seek to support the operations of the church. And this was a grant program, and it was delightful to read the grants because not one grant had to do with the operational aspects of the congregation. Now, I know I've gone way too off the scale because, yes, someone has to take care of the roof, You know, the bills need to be paid. There needs to be an organization for decision-making. But this was meant, uh, the formative power is a way to acknowledge that human beings form one another and that in gatherings and congregations, the divine God's presence and people together are formed into participation in those things that matter the most to them in life.
0: One of the things that I appreciate about getting to do this podcast and this work is the ability to kind of observe what's happening at more of a macro level while also staying somewhat in tune to the micro level of congregational life and then reflect back to our audience what we're seeing, what we're observing in the hopes that we can encourage them. You know, and so as we think about the year coming into an end, as we think about what we've observed in the past, what we're experiencing now and what we're looking ahead. Tim, I'm going to give you a chance in a moment to just offer a final word for the year for congregations. This can be whatever you want it to be. You know, the Center for Congregations, we do a lot of work. We award a lot of grants. We do a lot of resourcing. And as we mentioned, we can do that because of the generosity of the endowment. We can do work like this podcast because we have a very capable audio engineer that helps keep us sounding great. We're able to put out educational events that we advertise on our social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and put out resources on the CRG for you to access. But we do all this work in the hopes that we can make it a little bit easier for congregations to live out their mission for themselves and for their community. And so with that frame of mind, with that focus, we appreciate the listeners that are joining us from all across the state, particularly to those in Lafayette, Indiana that are listening. And for anyone else that's listening at any point in time right now, whether it's next year where you stumble upon this or you're listening to it as it drops in December, we just want to take a moment to offer one final word for the year based on what we've seen and what we've heard. So Tim, I'll turn it over to you. What is our closing word for the year of 2022 here on the Center for Congregations podcast?
2: Sure. Hope your life matters, both corporately as a congregation and individually as those who participate in congregations. Hope your life matters Hope your life matters. What you're doing with your congregation really does make a difference.
0: Thank you. With that, we'll sign off for the year. Thank you all for listening. Matt and Tim, thanks for joining us today. And in case you need one more reminder, hope your life matters. Take care, y'all.